Have you been outbirding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello, welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I am hoping that you are all having a nice fall. So far where I am, warbler fall is mostly ending, sparrow fall is ramping up, and we've still got duck fall, or as most non-birders call it, winter, still to come, still to look forward to. Birding had a major milestone this week that maybe a lot of you missed. Good news, you don't you don't have to miss it. If you are a podcast aficionado, you might be familiar with the NPR news quiz game show. Wait, wait, don't tell me. It was one of the first shows I listened to regularly, though my podcast queue is pretty backlogged these days. In any case, it is broadcast on national public radio stations across the United States. I've talked about them on a podcast before, one time way back when one of the panelists made some bird story references. But this past week, they featured, as a guest, one of our own, the incomparable Jason Ward, host of the web series Birds of North America. He was the guest for the Not My Job segment where they bring on celebrities to talk. Jason Ward was one of the celebrities. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know Jason. He's a friend of the ABA. He's been on here more than a few times. He has terrible opinions about American Woodcocks, but we don't hold that against him. But it was it was super amazing to hear him on the show for a couple of reasons. It means that Jason and the work that he's doing with Birds of North America is on the national radar, which is great. It's a fun show. Deserves all those accolades. Hashtag six seasons in a movie. And second... Jason makes birding look good. So, yeah, I'll direct you to the Wait Wait show. His combination of expertise and enthusiasm is really, really good for birding. He sells birding better than pretty much anyone in this birding community. I don't think any of our celebrities, and I do use that term really loosely, could pull something like this off as well as he does it. And I just say all that because I, I enjoyed the program. I enjoyed seeing him in that space and uh we should give our people flowers where they can enjoy them so link to the episode in the show notes please please enjoy it i did on the show this week we're talking greater sage grouse the conservation issues surrounding its existence and how to make people care i read a complaint of this podcast recently that it was too political that i'm too political perhaps and i acknowledge that we have talked about that more than usual recently, at least more explicitly. And I I guess I don't know how to talk about environmental policy and conservation without being somewhat political. Politics is the means by which we make decisions as a country. And yes, it can be toxic. And yes, it can be frustrating and sad. But it's also important for us to engage in it if we care about birds and their welfare. And it's especially apparent with the plight of the greater sage grouse. And that's the theme of the recent bird note grouse podcast series. I am joined by its creator, Ashley Ahern. We'll talk Sagelands conservation, how the grouse is a symbol for that conversation, all after this week's Rare Birds. (laughs) 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week of October 2020. Fall continues to bring bounties all across the continent, and we'll start with a couple ABA area rarities. Despite the lack of birding tourism on the western Alaska vagrant hotspots, we're still seeing some great birds from that state. A Siberian accenter was seen near Nome last week, and a yellow-browed warbler was discovered on Middleton Island, only the continent's second record away from those Bering Sea outposts. Interestingly enough, the first one also came from Middleton Island. But the most exciting find was the ABA area's second record of song thrush, seen near Utkiavik, formerly Barrow, In this far, far northern reaches of Alaska, the ABA's first record came from Quebec in 2017, so this is a first Alaska and first United States record as well. And that was not all from Alaska. A hooded crane shot by hunters at the Delta Junction is also a state first and potentially an ABA first as well. You might recall that a hooded crane spent most of the winter of 2011 and 2012 in Tennessee, was also seen migrating with sandhill cranes in Indiana and Nebraska in 2011-2012. That bird was not accepted by the ABA checklist committee because of provenance questions. It was a fairly controversial decision at the time. The subsequent record may induce a reevaluation of that older bird. And on the complete opposite side of the ABA area, at least three Bahama swallows were seen at the Florida Keys Hawk Watch and Curry Hammock State Park. There are about three or four previous records of this very easily overlooked species in the ABA area, all of them from Southern Florida. Also in Florida, a red-legged thrush was seen at Key West. This is the ABA's third record of the Caribbean version of the familiar American robin. Notably, this bird appeared to be of the Cuban subspecies, which makes sense for Key West, whereas the previous records, both from the east coast of Florida, represent the Bahamanian subspecies. Under the first records, a Virginia's warbler, appropriately seen on Virginia Avenue in Virginia Beach, Virginia, represents a first Virginia record, and one evidently that is a long time coming. And just up the coast in Delaware, a Bells Vario in Sussex County is a state first of a species that has been very hard to come by on the East Coast in the last decade or so. Those are the highlights for the week, as always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada. Check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page. Or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash ABA Rare or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. The greater sage grouse is one of the more bizarre birds on the North American continent and frequently a flashpoint for conservation and land management issues in the American West, a complication that perhaps birders aren't always fully aware of. My guest today finds herself in the middle of all that from her home in eastern Washington. Ashley Ahern is a public radio and podcast journalist, the creator of Grouse, an audio series produced by BirdNote and available at all the usual podcast places. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here, Nate. So how did you come to be interested in sage grouse and how they sort of fit into the the landscape of eastern Washington? Well, so I'd been covering the environment from cities for my entire, you know, professional career, basically. And uh, when I moved to sagebrush country to eastern Washington, I started to see more um, what these conservation issues look like on the ground and these divisions between sort of city liberals or coastal liberals and rural, more conservative folks who live closer to the land often find the flashpoint to be environmental issues. Um, And now I was living on the front lines of it. And, you know, we don't actually have sage grouse in the exact little valley where I live, but sage grouse are one of those species that because 
because it was considered for endangered species protection, could have come with a lot of uh, regulations and what some out here might see as government overreach um, to keep it around, essentially. So it's I've, I've been thinking about it, and I'm not the first to say this, as a little bit of a you know 21st century spotted owl, our version of that controversial bird. Yeah, you know, I, I came of age sort of as an environmentalist mm-hmm. with the spotted owl sort of as the key species as the species that a lot of people were were interested in it. It was on a lot of mm-hmm. you know, the Sierra Club, National Wildlife Federation, all those sorts of things were using the using the spotted owl as this sort of species to get people engaged in environmental issues. Sage grouse is a little bit different there. It's not quite as uh I don't I don't want to say personable because it's not a person, it's an animal, <laughs> but it's a little maybe slightly less charismatic, at least on the on the surface. Oh, I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> but I might be biased at this point. That's true. People have this weird attraction to owls. Owls are strange like that. And sage grouse is definitely a very different sort of bird. <laughs> it is. It is um, downright alien, <laughs> I, I have to say, in some ways. Otherworldly, majestic. Um, I mean, I have nothing against owls, but once you've been out in the freezing cold, dawn, pre-dawn, gray, sagebrush country and watched these birds do this ancient, ancient dance mm-hmm. and fight, um, you you can't not love them as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And they, they trump all other birds for me at this point, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> so you've been covering environmental issues for years in sort of various capacities. Is this story all that different from those you've covered before, or are the beats sort of familiar to you? I wish I could say that it's really different and that we're going to find a way forward and work through this kind of thorny conservation question about what to do with sage grouse mm-hmm. and how to keep them around. Um, but unfortunately, I see so many parallels between you know what we're doing about sage grouse to what we're doing about endangered orcas in Puget Sound to what we're doing about um, the spotted owl, how we're managing that species. Um, and I think that it comes down to these bigger questions around compromise and yeah. a lot of the different interest groups that want a piece of sagebrush country, not unlike you know, what we saw with logging country sure. and the spotted owl, um, you know, the the different demands from ranchers, oil and gas extraction, mining interests, um, recreational users, birders. I mean, everybody wants a piece of this country and wants it to be a certain way that they picture in their minds. And those visions are not the same. And that to me is really um, a fruitful place, a fertile, fertile ground for storytelling and um, exploration. And so that's kind of what drew me to this, this, the sage grouse story. Yeah. So, so what do you think people who are coming at this issue from primarily, you know, environmental interests, uh, be they there in sagebrush country or, you know, anywhere on the continent, um, what do they miss about what's going on with greater sage grouse? I think it's easy to look at open sagebrush country and see sort of, um, kind of a wasteland, a no man's mm-hmm. land. I know I did before I moved to sagebrush country. It, it, it is not, it doesn't hit you over the head. It's, it's subtle, honest country. And I think that for people who, you know, conservationists love these charismatic, you know, megafauna type yeah, ecosystems, yeah. you know, old growth forests were so much more of a draw, I think, in many ways right. than sagebrush country has been in, our, in the American mindset. But now that I live in sagebrush country and I see the deep passion that people out here have for this ecosystem and the value they place upon it from so many different perspectives, I... I have a newfound love and respect for it myself and a newfound, I think, understanding or at least empathy for people who are trying to make a living out here mm-hmm. because the economic drivers look completely different from, you know, coastal environmentalists and coastal, um, I think, economies, frankly. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's definitely a lot more nuance there, it feels yeah. like. Um, yeah, you mentioned the old growth forests. I mean, it's such a dramatic landscape. And not to say that sagebrush country isn't dramatic right. in its own way, but it is it is really different. But I, I will say, mm-hmm. I do think birders do appreciate some of these nuances. I mean, we're... You're we right. are a group no, of people do. that like goes to landfills and, and sewage treatment plants to burn. <laughs> no, like a- birders are some of the most perceptive, honestly. Yeah. I mean, and when it comes to like just people who really are paying attention to the landscape, I think birders are among the the leaders in that in, in our modern world. Whether or not they even call themselves conservationists, yeah. all of them, or environmentalists, um, people that are looking for birds are looking so closely at a landscape that I think gets overlooked quite a bit. And the bird species of sagebrush country, as many of your listeners know, I think are some of the most beautiful, especially sonically. Ones. Yeah. Yeah, like sage thrasher and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the green. Yeah, I can't tell you how many like sage thrashers, thrashers, and I think there was another type of sparrow that kept showing up on my recordings for of the grouse. Yeah, yeah. and it was in many ways more beautiful than the grouse, or had such a different kind of musicality to it that was like overlaid on the grouse, kind of burbling and popping that the grouse right. make. That I was kind of like, well, I get, I want to cut that out because I want to just feature the grouse, but gosh, it's so beautiful too. It was really an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> From a practical perspective, mm-hmm. what was it like recording? in these places. I mean, it's super windy. It's difficult. It's difficult to record out there. Yeah, you definitely, I mean, you'll hear some wind in this podcast. I did my best, but um, even with the drowned rat, you know, big kind of fluffy thing on the edge of the end of the microphone. um, It was, yeah, it was some really challenging recording. Um, But that was really what I wanted to do with this show was take people with me and really have an immersive Mm -hmm. sound experience. And frankly, wind is part of that experience. If you're out there doing, you know, birding, you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, using, uh, the best, this podcast, I can say having worked in public radio for more than 15 years, provided some of the best recording experiences of my career. And I, I am so excited to share that with listeners, these moments in the pre-dawn gray, um, crouched in a blind in the red desert of Wyoming with my microphone sticking out from underneath the blind and the birds are practically fighting with it, mating with it, whatever you want to call it, definitely getting some side eyes from some very fluffed up male sage grouse that were, they didn't, they weren't disturbed by our presence because we got into the blind before they showed up to start their display in the morning. But um, they knew something was up, but they didn't let that get in the way of their, their ancient dance. And being able to record those sounds from feet away is one of the best audio experiences I've ever had. And frankly, one of the most um, deeply touching, almost spiritual, reverential experiences I've ever had as a, as a human, not just a journalist. <laughs> yeah. That, that experience of being at a, at a chicken lek is, mm. it's other, it's otherworldly. And, you know, sage grouse are, are sort of unique. I mean, they're, all of them, all of those birds in that family have their own kind of little special thing, but sage grouse, yeah. my goodness, that's such a, it's so big <laughs> and it's so yeah. weird and it's so, I don't know, like I, I haven't gotten to that episode yet. So I'm, we're recording this at the end of September. Mm-hmm. So um, I've, I'm four episodes in, so I'm halfway in. Um, yeah. But uh, I assume you're gonna, you're obviously gonna go to a lek. What was that whole experience like for you? Uh, so that's episode seven, okay. where I really, I mean, I visit many leks, but the one where I really got the closest to the birds and got the best sound is sort of the I built up through the whole series yeah. to that moment. Yeah, I was on gonna say, lek. like, I, I wasn't sure where in like sort of the narrative story I was at this yeah, point. Yeah, I didn't, so. I didn't want to like, <laughs> you know, I don't know jump the gun. Right, I really right. wanted oh, listeners certainly. to come yeah. with me on the journey. And so the whole show is almost laid out 
the narrative arc follows almost the approach to the grouse. You know, you're learning about all these things. You're learning, you know, Native American um, myth and legend about the bird. You're learning about all the different interests and conflict around the bird. You're learning about the conservation questions it raises and even the philosophical questions mm -hmm. it raises for us as a species about how we share the planet with other creatures. And then you kind of arrive at this lek in the Red Desert and that is where I kind of land the series. You know, I think we're talking about birders. I think we in the birding community are sort of very present in the world of birds. But sometimes, I don't know, yeah. we miss that sort of uh, utilitarian aspect of some of these places. <laughs> um, you know, we, we sort of we certainly undervalue the sort of tension that exists between a bird yeah. like these and the, you know, the ranchers and all the stakeholders on this landscape. Do you see that? playing out not just among birders, but perhaps even among people in cities like Seattle, where you lived for many years? Like, how do they see the sage grouse and how do they see that um, that conflict? I think, and I can speak for myself, having lived in, in cities and lived in Seattle and reported there for seven years, um, there is, and it's through no fault of, of theirs, people who live in cities, if they haven't experienced rural life and if they don't mm. know people who make their living off of the landscape and live very closely to the land, I think it's a lot easier to kind of write it off or ignore any sort of conservation leanings of the people out here in sagebrush country. Because the truth is, I mean, the ranchers that I know, and I move, I move cows for local ranchers now, and I've really kind of tried to invest in this community, you know, with my time and mm. volunteering and stuff like that. Um, they, as you hear in episode four, I mean, mm -hmm. they're even noticing down to how many bites their cows have taken out of each bunch grass plant on the landscape. You know, they're looking so closely and they spend their lives so closely to the land. Whereas, you know, as a city person, I'd, I'd work in LA for a couple of years, then I'd move to Seattle. I was in DC for a couple of years. You know, you just kind of bounce around and, and we're not as tied to the land. And so I think if there's one gap, and I'm generalizing here, It's and maybe birders bypass this because they spend so much time out in the country. Maybe they can see this a little bit better than I think a lot of city folks do. But it's that conservation is not a word that is reserved for city environmentalists. Mm -hmm. It's like conservation to me now living in sagebrush country looks much broader and it it looks different it looks like yes you can kill a rattlesnake on your property and still consider yourself a conservationist and i think there are a lot of environmentalists who would say well no you never kill anything right but when you're living close to the land and you're trying to really make a go of it survive um there are certain trade-offs that start to happen and again i'm not saying everyone should go out and kill rattlesnakes i'm just saying it's a part of life out here that you know i purposely started the whole series with that vignette because it was a story of my feeling out of place, ill-equipped, and not understanding what it means to live this closely to the land in all the ways that it touches your daily life. And so I think now I, I just see things a little bit differently. And it's it's not to say that there aren't bad actors in the ranching community and in the oil and gas community. But I will say that I think environmentalists enjoy this, especially city folks, enjoy the luxury of sitting up on their on their soapboxes sometimes and and um, preaching at how people in the country should manage these places that they live, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think sometimes there's also sort of an idealized version of yeah. the landscape of the American West um, that, you know, misses a lot of what some of the real issues are. You know, someone right. who perhaps is not familiar with that area might look at a landscape that's covered in cheatgrass and think, oh, this is this is beautiful. This is the ideal West, when obviously, like, there's some serious problems going on that someone who right. is more familiar with it is going to be able to see. Yeah. 
Well, and if you take that one step further, the cheatgrass issue is such it's such an interesting conservation yeah. question because there is some science that suggests that cows may actually help with that. And it's not to say they didn't help create the problem. Right. To be clear, I mean, part of how cheatgrass arrived in the West was livestock and, you know, grass and weeds from the East Coast. But, um, you know, using cows strategically to graze at certain points in the growth cycle of that invasive plant is a tool that that land managers are starting to look at more closely as a way to kind of knock this back and try to keep it from spreading further. So it's just that nuance that I think now that I'm out here and actually talking to folks that are managing the land day in and day out, that it's just not so black and white. I think that's what I was trying to do with this show is there's a gray area around everybody and every perspective, and there's some value to be taken from each of those perspectives. Yeah. It's one of those things I also noticed during the um, the Malheur uh, National Wildlife mm-hmm. Refuge occupation uh, a few yeah. years ago and how um, a lot of people learned, myself included, and I consider myself, you know, pretty well versed on this stuff, but there's a lot of mm-hmm. stuff I don't know, um, mm-hmm. how private landowners and private cattle ranchers use that refuge as well as yeah. part of the refuge management process. I yeah. mean, there is a, there are a lot of opportunities for a synergy of sorts among people who have interest primarily in conservation and people who have interest perhaps in the economic side uh, of these landscapes that I think are really interesting. It goes to show that the line cannot be drawn so finely, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And that it can be abused. I mean, there are plenty of ranchers, not necessarily in my community, but, you know, oh, the fence breaks. Oh, my cows are out for a little longer on the grazing area Mm -hmm. than they were supposed to be. You know, everybody kind of pushes the boundaries. I'm sure birders, you know, like one of the things no comment, in visiting all I these sage-grouse leks, <laughs> the wildlife managers would say to me, please don't publicize where this is yeah. because it can be overrun, mm-hmm. right? And even though birders may know these are very sensitive birds to human activity and they can be so respectful and so quiet, it's also a numbers game. If enough people are out exactly. trying to observe yeah. these animals, I've heard stories of leks being abandoned because they become sort of known and discovered and then frequented by birders. Yeah. So, you know, it's like we've all got our flaws and we all kind of overstep or push things in, in different ways. Yeah. As I said, I'm, I'm four episodes in and um, yep. I don't know whether you're going to touch on the you know, the Sage Grouse Initiative, this sort of multi-party mm-hmm. private, private-public partnership that has actually seen a lot of successes in sort of reaching out to all these di- various stakeholders. What is the status of that these days? The Sagegrass Initiative, I mean, I've been in conversation with those folks throughout the reporting on this because mm-hmm. they're such a resource in terms of information sure, and yeah. knowing. The website is amazing alone. <laughs> yeah, right. No, they're they're doing a, a really good job, I think. Um, I'm not sure what the future of their funding yeah. looks like. Yeah, um, I was more focused on not the Sagegrass Initiative, but the Sagegrass strategy that mm-hmm. was hammered out to avoid listing the bird under the Endangered Species Act. And so that was more of the right. government and um, state policymaker side of things, as opposed to the Sagegrass Initiative, which I know can get confusing for people, is more about empowering and engaging private landowners right. in conservation issues around the bird. Um, what I was more interested in is the question of whether we list it or not. Yeah. And that I spent the whole episode of episode seven at the lek in, in the red desert of Wyoming, but also kind of diving into this um, conservation sage-grouse um, strategy and what it meant and what compromise can look like in terms of when you have all of these interested parties at the table talking about how to manage this bird, what kind of regulations are appropriate, what will work to keep them around, what will keep you know the oil and gas industry happy or the ranchers happy. Um, th- these larger questions emerge about, I kind of think about it like a Venn diagram of conservation where everybody gets mm-hmm. a piece of the pie, but oftentimes for the sake of compromise, the overlap, the shared space that keeps the bird happy 
gets smaller and smaller as everybody else makes sure their interests are met in sagebrush country. And so to me, when we look at these kind of conservation strategies, I think there are a lot of harder philosophical questions to ask, not just about the nuts and bolts of like, how's the sage grouse initiative doing? It's Mm -hmm. did the sage grouse conservation strategy that everybody came together on in 2015 work? And and where are we now? Yeah. Yeah. What an irony that the sage grouse strategy, (laughs) well, I guess the sage grouse cannot technically be, have a seat at the table. They have to have people (laughs) advocating for them and therefore they're, you know, they, they kind of get the short end of the stick, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, if you ask environmentalists like uh, Eric Molvar and Western Watersheds Project, they are the ones who are at the table advocating for the bird. And I think if you ask folks on the other side of that, um, many folks I've spoken to across the spectrum will see that as more, these environmental groups are advocating for the land to not be worked anymore, to not be used. And they're using the bird as uh, As a weapon. It's the weaponization of an endangered species is the term that I've used, I've heard used in sagebrush country. Yeah, that is a huge problem with the Endangered Species Act, just in general, yeah. or at least public perception of the Endangered Species yep. Act. And a yep. lot of that, I mean, that you, you, you talked about parallels earlier. My goodness, that's such a parallel to the spotted owl story. And, yes. and God, like so many other you know, birds and and (laughs) organisms all across the Western part of the continent, it seems like increasingly, since that's where, you know, people and nature come at most conflict. Unfortunately, those, those uh, struggles have uh, already been, you know, had in the Eastern part of the Mm. continent and, and frequently the, the organisms do not come out on the, on the good end of that, sadly. I know. I think that the West feels like it's still, and living in sagebrush country now, it feels like it's still somewhat uncharted its future isn't written yeah and that that maybe there's maybe there's a chance to not screw things up i mean i grew up in massachusetts and Mm -hmm. yeah i mean everything's fenced off there's not as much public land there's nowhere to go you know gallop your horse and breathe deeply and be away from from all of the the traffic and the noise um that i grew up with and i think as i look and many people who cherish sagebrush country you know part of that is the open landscape and and wanting to keep it that way because Mm -hmm. the truth is that's what the bird needs too. (laughs) Yeah. And part of that is also, you know, sort of the loose application of laws, you know, that frontier mentality is one that is really (laughs) difficult to break from, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Having looked at all sort of sides of this issue, do you think there are opportunities to kind of do right by the birds and all the stakeholders or is that, you know, window closing? That's a really hard question, Nate. Um, I... I mean, if you look at the numbers, the bird is in pretty dramatic decline, average of 44% across the nine states um, that that are the main kind of um, area for sage grouse in the West um, over the past five years. And that, when you look at numbers like that, for me, it tells me that whatever we're doing is not working mm-hmm. um, and that some sort of drastic action. We need like a green new deal for sage grouse, basically, (laughs) if we're going to do this. And I I think there are a lot of parallels, both with the spotted owl, as we've talked about, but also with the climate issue, climate change, and the kinds of actions that are needed to reduce our CO2 emissions are not actions that are easy at this point. They're not actions that are comfortable, and they're not actions that make everybody go home from the negotiating table feeling great about their prospects. And that's the unfortunate place that we find ourselves as a species, I think, on the planet right now. And I think that sage grouse are are in the crosshairs of that same question of, you know, are we going to have (laughs) the fortitude, the moral fortitude to, to choose, frankly, to do what it takes to keep this bird around, even if it costs some of us 
our livelihoods mm-hmm. um, in the same way that, you know, you look at coal miners and climate or you look at, you know, these kinds of these traditionally extractive industries and the, our future prospects for reducing our CO2 emissions or even our personal sacrifices around how we get around and, and whether or not we're driving, you know, pickup trucks that have very low miles per gallon or flying as frequently as we used to. Um, you know, these are not criticisms that are reserved for, you know, rural people who are driving the big pickup trucks. To be clear, I drive a, a diesel pickup truck now, which I run on biodiesel, to be clear. <laughs> but all of these questions are hard and they're uncomfortable, but I think that they're worth asking because if we don't ask them, this bird is doomed to, to be lost. That is my personal belief. Do you think people want to hear this story or need to hear this story? <laughs> Well, I think my my strategy, if I'm going to, you know, show all the tricks up my sleeve, was to <laughs> weave together my personal story and sort of as this stranger in a strange land flailing around rural life and trying to figure out my way, frankly, as a bit of an entertainment source um, to hook people. It's the whole spoonful of sugar approach right. that, you know, come for the Ashley trying to record herself herding cows on a horse that doesn't listen to her very often. Stay for the questions about ranching and sage grouse and whether or not we can have beef and sage grouse on the landscape. Um, So yes, unabashedly, I use my own experience to hook the listener in the hopes that they'll engage with the content, with these kind of thorny and frankly uncomfortable questions that this bird raises for all of us. Um, I don't, I won't lie and say that this is the most uplifting story that we can be listening to these days. Par for the course um, for most environmental stories these days. I hate to say it. Yeah. I think the best we can do as journalists and storytellers is to try to engage on the heart and philosophical level right now, because I don't know that people need more facts and figures, to be honest. I think, you know, what you need to know is that the birds' numbers are declining, and they've been declining, and now we have a hard choice, and everybody is facing it. And, and you can choose to ignore it. A lot of people do, right? Feel free. <laughs> Don't listen to the show, you know? Um, but if you want to engage in in the, I think, almost spiritual questions that that the bird raises for us at this point in our, in our life or history as a species, then this is the show. Ashley Ahern is a public radio and podcast journalist. The series Grouse is available wherever you can find podcasts. Uh, Thank you so much, Ashley. This was a great conversation. It was really wonderful. You're so welcome. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the other free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. It really does help us out. We have memberships at whatever level interests you. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Karen Bell of Woodbridge, Virginia, Amy Rossi and family of Tacoma, Washington, and Catherine Degner of Pasadena, California, all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. If you want to help out even more, you can leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review not only gives us great feedback, but helps people find us. Thank you for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who was inspired by Wait Wait, came up with a bird-themed guessing game about bird beak adaptations. It's called Who's Bill This Time? Technical production is by John Lowry. For the next bird festival we're allowed to go to, John and I will be doing a live bird-themed version of Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, wherein I get to be the host, Peter Siegel. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who I'm excited to bring here today to play a not-my-job game called Additional Kelp. You know about helping out on the ABA podcast, but do you know about seaweed? You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at 
ABA. Here's one for the listener limerick challenge. A red shank with photos for you to view. No location, so what are you to do? Your options are grim. It's time to break in and hack the observer's new. That's right, Subaru. Questions and comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.